If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of BradburyMedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome to the second episode of Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be interviewing someone who works to preserve and provide access to Ray Bradbury's manuscripts, papers, and personal effects. And that's Jason Orkerman, the Managing Director of the Centre for Ray Bradbury's Studies, which is in Indianapolis. Now, before we get to the interview, um, I'd like to tell you something about my own experience of working with the Bradbury Centre in conducting my own research. Today, the centre is transforming itself into a museum and a place where anyone can go to get sight of Ray's old office. They've, they've recreated his office using all original furniture, uh, which was kindly gifted to the centre when Ray died in 2012. But the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies used to be a, a much smaller affair, just a, a couple of very tightly packed rooms filled with filing cabinets and books. I think I first visited there in 2009, when the centre had been formally operating for just a couple of years. I was looking to do some research into Ray's media work, which is my thing, um, in support of my website at that time, and to follow up a couple of journal articles I'd written about Ray's radio plays and adaptations of his stories. At that time, the centre was able to provide access to an excellent collection of Ray's correspondence from which I was able to see letters he'd written to people like uh, the playwright and director Norman Corwin, uh, film director Francois Truffaut, Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling. There was also an impressive collection of magazines containing Ray's stories and essays, everything from the old pulp magazines of the 1940s through to copies of Playboy and other classy publications that later carried Ray's work. Oh, and books, of course. Nearly every edition of every Bradbury book, including many foreign language editions. And many contextual books. That is to say, uh, books about Ray, books about science fiction, books about horror, books about popular culture, and so on. Now, the two people behind the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies were its co-founders, Jonathan R. Eller and William F. Tuponts. Separately, these two scholars had published articles and books on Ray's work, and together they had completed the mammoth study, Ray Bradbury, The Life of Fiction. Now this one book, it's quite a thick book, really kicked at everything that previous scholars had written about Ray's work. Much of the general scholarly opinion of Ray had been formed by about 1980, but this book, which came out in the 2000s, gave everything a bit of a kick. 
So what did scholars think of Ray? Well, generally, they saw him as a genre writer with a poetic turn of phrase, someone who had done his best work in the 1950s, and if you were going to study him at all, you'd better focus on Fahrenheit 451, since nothing else measured up to that. Well, what Ella and Tuponts did in The Life of Fiction was show that there was so much more to Ray than Fahrenheit. They painstakingly dug into the history of how Ray had created each of his books and revealed what we might call the poetics of his work, how Ray uses language, imagery, recurring themes. If you're interested in this sort of thing, Life of Fiction is well worth getting hold of. Now, it turns out that John Eller is the textual historian. He will trace back through Ray's manuscripts and figure out how he wrote, say, Dandelion Wine or Fahrenheit 451, while Bill Tuponce was the literary theorist uh, who enjoyed looking for literary themes and devices, uh, Ray's use of masks in the Martian Chronicles, his use of carnivals and circuses, and Bill would relate these to literary theories from people like Bakhtin. Now, oddly, Ella and Tuponce met really by coincidence, and from their shared interest in Bradbury, they developed a number of projects together which established the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies, Life of Fiction, which I've already mentioned, a journal called the New Ray Bradbury Review, a critical edition of Ray's collected stories, and books on It Came From Outer Space and The Halloween Tree, and much more. Bill Tuponce eventually retired, but even in retirement he continued researching and publishing. Sadly, though, he died in 2017, but John Eller continues to direct the Bradbury Centre to this day. Now, when I first visited the Bradbury Centre back in 2009, it was really like John and Bill's study. It was a relatively small space, packed full of all their reference materials. And it was a great place to be for someone like me, giving access to almost everything I could want to research Ray's work. Now, unfortunately, of course, Ray Bradbury passed away in 2012. But this sad circumstance led to the eventual expansion of the Bradbury Centre and the development of its outreach programme, which it, which it operates today. When Ray died, most of his vast personal archive, his papers, his letters, all of this was left to his long-time bibliographer and friend, Don Albright. And Don generously turned it over to the Bradbury Centre, and this drastically expanded its collection almost overnight. Truckloads of material was shipped in from California, where Ray lived, to the Bradbury Centre in Indiana. The filing cabinets and boxes were put into this large, empty computer lab on the campus of IUPUI in Indianapolis and had to be slowly catalogued and incorporated into the centre. And I was lucky enough to be given access to all this new material shortly after it had shipped. On one of my visits, John Eller kindly gave me free reign to work through the cabinets and boxes, researching whatever I needed. And by this point, I was doing a PhD on Ray's script writing. And it was a real privilege to be seeing inside these filing cabinets, which were pretty much as Ray had left them just a couple of years earlier. Now, a couple of years further on, in 2017, I was able to return to the centre and see it 
pretty much as it is now. It's in a bigger location with room for these dozens of cabinets brought in from California and with one room dedicated to a carefully crafted reconstruction of Ray's working office. Ironically, the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies is jam-packed once again. It moved into much bigger accommodations, but once all these new materials were brought in, it was full again. Well, nowadays, the centre allows visitors and researchers to view Ray's manuscripts, uh, multiple drafts of books and film scripts, more correspondence files than ever before, and also a huge collection of Ray's toys and trinkets, uh, memorabilia and awards. And we'll hear more about these in our interview with Jason coming up. Now, you may be asking, who cares about some dusty old collection of papers? Well, anyone with an interest in Ray's work, uh, you can see from these how he went about drafting his stories, with rewrite after rewrite as he pursued perfection. You can see what influenced him. The books from his own personal library, everything from Edgar Rice Burroughs to George Bernard Shaw. You can see the robots, the rocket ships, his model of the Nautilus. Oh, and the artwork. Ray didn't just let his books go out with any old cover on them. He took particular care over what his books should look like. And the Bradbury Centre has lots of covers and posters from Ray's films and so on on display. If you're intrigued, there is a virtual 3D tour you can take online. I'll give you a link on my website so you can take a look. And as for my own research, the last time I was in the Bradbury Centre, I was trying to collate a complete set of scripts from Ray's TV series, the Ray Bradbury Theatre. From previous visits, I was pretty sure that all the scripts were there somewhere, but with the collection still being catalogued, nobody was really able to point to any one place and say, there they are. So I was determined to track each script and every, every draft of each script. and. I succeeded. There is indeed at least one draft of every single one of those 65 scripts. Well, more than 65, because Ray wrote a couple more that weren't actually filmed. Fortunately, Ray kept almost everything, mostly for himself, I'm sure. But in so doing, he also succeeded in keeping everything for future generations. So we can keep studying his work and his creative process for years to come. Don't forget, there'll be some show notes on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, where I'll post links to the Bradbury Centre. And now it's time to meet this week's guest on Bradbury 100. Once again, I'm going to apologise if the sound quality is a bit below par. We, we really must get some better internets. But I'll just start by saying I have with me today Jason Orkerman, who is the Managing Director of the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. The first question, Jason, is tell us something about the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. What is it? What does it do? The Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies is a museum, archive, reference library um, on the campus of Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Uh, we've got uh, about, uh, I would say, 150,000 pages of Bradbury's personal papers, you know, manuscripts, early drafts of stories, correspondence, and uh, a lot of his personal effects, a lot of his audio and vid uh, video recordings, 
and uh, enough of his personal items that we have recreated his basement office uh, at his Los Angeles residence with entirely original artifacts. His working library, uh, both of his writing desks, uh, four of his typewriters, and you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the dinosaurs and other toys that he played with, uh, you know, even into his eighties. Um, are, are right there in the office as well. So visitors can actually literally walk right into Ray Bradbury's office. Uh, we also have a number of his awards and mementos, you know, his Emmys, his Blitzer, um, uh, numerous uh, ACE cable TV awards, uh, National Book Award, National Medal of Arts, and so we curate all of that. And stuff. So the, in a way, the title Center for Ray Bradbury Studies is a little bit misleading because it, it sounds more like um, more like a museum collection or a, uh, even a visitor attraction if you if you allow people in and give them tours. Yeah, absolutely. Before uh, before the virus hit, you know, we've had to pivot quite a bit uh, as a result of COVID nineteen. But yeah, we we hosted tours, and uh, you're right that the title is misleading. But the the title uh, comes from a a period before we had all this material. So the center was originally founded to promote scholarship on Ray Bradbury. You know, the world of Ray, Ray Bradbury scholars is limited now. It was even more so limited in the late 80s and early 90s. And uh, just uh, just by a happy accident, two of the world's leading scholars on Ray Bradbury ended up employed at Indiana University, Bill Tupont, uh, Dr. Bill Tupont and Dr. Jonathan Elmer. And the two of them established the center, so they kicked off the New Ray Bradbury Review, which is a scholarly journal on the works of Ray Bradbury. And they also uh, put together the collected stories of Ray Bradbury, which tracks Bradbury's earliest stories. And you know, through manuscript study and, and other things, they try to find Bradbury's original settled intent for his short stories before they reached the publishers and got into the hands of editors. You know, what did he originally intend for the story? So that's that's quite intense work, isn't it? Um, involving looking at not only uh, published versions of the story, of which there may be many, but also looking at the original manuscripts and variations on those manuscripts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's not my specialty. You know, that's really uh, Dr. Eller's expertise. Can you tell us um, a little bit then about what your role is? I, I gather that it's uh, developed over time. I came into uh, a brand new PhD program at IUPUI that required an internship. So a third of the PhD is an internship. And I enrolled in the track uh, for the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. And so my internship was in the center. And from the very beginning, the plan was a, it was a succession plan. Uh, Dr. Eller, uh, who is uh, the co-founder of the center, and he's still our current director, He's ready to retire. Uh, so when he retires, I'm going to take over the director role of the center. But really, the, the mission of the center expanded in ways that we, we never could have envisioned it, uh, from the from the onset, the purpose for the center when it was originally established. When we received, after Bradbury's passing in 2013 and 2014, his personal effects, uh, you know, we became a massive archive in a museum in addition to a scholarly publishing center. Uh, the title didn't change, and we didn't get any additional support. So really, Dr. Eller has been wearing many, many hats uh, the last few years, and I'm going to try to wear as many of those hats as well. 
you know, really my, my job in the center is one to make it available for curating the material legacy of Ray Bradbury and to make this available to the public as Ray Bradbury and his family wished is an enormous responsibility, especially when you have a very limited staff. And my role at the university is actually primarily faculty. I'm a clinical uh, assistant professor of English and American studies. And I have a heavy teaching load that goes along with my responsibilities. So. Do you get the opportunity to use Bradbury in your teaching? Oh, absolutely. I encountered Bradbury, uh, I believe, for the first time. I don't recall ever reading Bradbury in high school or college. But I was aware of Fahrenheit 451, and I knew that, that was an important book to read. So when I was no longer being assigned books to read, that was one of the first books that I picked up and, and read. And it, it had a, it had a, an, an impression of but I hadn't really read anything else by Bradbury until I started teaching in 2012. I'd finished my first master's degree, and the university I was working for, I was in development. I was fundraising for the university at the time. They needed people to teach freshman composition, and I, you know, my goal from the very beginning uh, in choosing English as a major, I wanted to go on and get a PhD and teach full time, and. Uh, so I accepted the opportunity, of course, freshman composition is the class that no student wants to take, and for the most part, no professor wants to teach. And I knew how to write, but I had no idea how to teach other people. So I was um, was teaching 25 freshmen in a computer lab, which was fortunate because every night I would prepare a lecture for the students that I think would take, you know, the better part of the hour and 15 to 20 minutes in, I was through all of my slides. I was out of things to say. Who can stand up in front of people and talk about writing for an hour? Uh, especially starting out, that was, that was difficult. So I would make up writing prompts right there on the spot and have the students write. And that, uh, that corresponded with my experience in learning how to write. You learn to write by writing. By the time late September rolled around, we'd been in class for five or six weeks and the students were starting to felt like they were on to me. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing <laughs> and I needed something to, to validate my approach and, and having them write so much, uh, especially during class time. And so I consulted Dr. Google and came across this clip where Ray Bradbury is wearing a white sports coat, white undershirt, white shorts, white socks. Uh, he looks absolutely ridiculous in a way <laughs> and, uh, and charming at the same time. And he's talking about uh, his experience becoming a writer and writing every day for 10 years. And after 10 years, he wrote this short story called The Lake. And how the experience writing that story really opened his eyes that at that point he had become a writer. And he wasn't writing for anybody else. He wasn't writing for this magazine or that magazine. Uh, he'd come into his own and he'd, he'd found his voice as a writer. And that, that concept of writing persistently and writing yourself into confidence perfectly aligned with what I was trying to do in the classroom. So I shared that video clip with my students and uh, got a copy of the October Country and read the lake aloud in class. And that, that was my very first attempt at teaching college writing. I've taught it every semester since in Ray Bradbury. That video clip is, is shown to my students and I read the lake every year. So that's uh, he, he's been an important part of, of my teaching. Uh, absolutely love that story. It's a workshop that my students always seem to enjoy. That's brilliant. It's, that's one of my favorite stories. Um, 
And it, it's, you kind of imagine Bradbury sitting there at his typewriter day after day after day, year after year, in fact. Um, and then one day that one comes out on, on the paper. Yeah. And it, it must have been quite astonishing that for him to have even noted himself that it was, um, the story that proved he was a writer after being at it for a number of years. I don't know many other writers who can really sort of pin down a particular day um, when their writing went from being okay to being superb. Um, right. It's a, an amazing moment, really. Um, let's just be a little bit frivolous now. There's all sorts of stuff in the collections in the Bradbury Centre. What's your favourite thing? Oh, that's... You would ask that, wouldn't you, Phil? Um <laughs> Uh, let's, uh, let's see here. Um, there, I, I guess saying all of it's, uh, uh, too, too much of a cop out, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, one thing that I really enjoy showing people is we have a, a film script in the center. It's a fourth draft that was composed by Bradbury's good friend, Lee Brackett. Uh, Bradbury and Lee Brackett had a very close relationship throughout their lives. Uh, Lee really mentored Bradbury and help teach him how to write for the pulps. You know, in, in her early career, uh, she got called to do the film script for The Big Sleep. And she was in the middle of a short story, a novelette called Lorelei of the Red Mist. And she couldn't finish it and and, and go on to work at uh, in Hollywood at the same time. So she asked Bradbury to finish the story for her. And very few people know where Lee Brackett left off and Ray Bradbury picked up. Um, so they, they had that close relationship. They, they knew how to write in each other's style. So she was working on this film late in life and she was sick. Uh, the people uh, that were working on the film weren't exactly sure that she would be able to make it to the end. So they reached out to Ray Bradbury and said, can you guarantee her work? And uh, from what I understand, Bradbury agreed to guarantee her work to finish the script if Lee Brackett could not. But under one condition, that she got full credit for it, that his name didn't appear anywhere in the credits. And uh, they agreed, and Bradbury was keeping up with the film project, but he didn't have to work on it because uh, Lee Brackett finished and passed away uh, a short while after the script was complete. But we have evidence of it because there's a fourth draft of the script in the Bradbury Center, and that's for uh, The Empire Strikes Back, you know, the famous Star Wars film. Uh, so that's always a fun story to tell, and always fun to show people that manuscript as it's uh, starting to get old and appears to have some sort of moisture damage on it. Uh, I, I also love Bradbury's Pulitzer Prize, uh, partly because it's got a little chip in it, um, <laughs> uh, which is pretty typical of Bradbury's. Uh, uh, many of his awards have have uh, a slight cosmetic damage, and it's because he played with them. You know, he played with his toys, and uh, these uh, these objects weren't necessarily things to be revered; they were to be enjoyed, and. Mm-hmm. and uh, and I think his Pulitzer really signifies that he found a way to navigate uh, popular culture and what some people would call maybe the more elitist high culture. Uh, he's appreciated in both circles. Uh, so, so the Pulitzer's uh, great. Yeah, we also have an original Jack Kirby sketch of Mr. Miracle. And we had it framed in the center for the longest time. And I'd never taken it out or handled it. It was, you know, it was in a frame and we set up the office for tours. We would display it. And uh, we took it out of the frame recently just for better storage, uh, for, for safer keeping, because it's an original Jack Kirby, you know, um, and it's of Mr. Miracle. And I wasn't sure when he was, when it was given to him uh, until we took it out of the frame and I was able to see the back part of it. 
It's written on a cardboard uh, poster for the third annual Comic-Con in San Diego. And apparently Ray Bradbury and Jack Kirby were guests of honor um, one of the days during the convention, and they were hanging out at, uh, at their table signing autographs. And I guess during a slow period, Jack must have decided, well, here, Ray, I'll, I'll sketch you a character of, that I've been working on recently. So that's uh, that's a really charming piece in the collection. And, you know, just we have all kinds of scholar adventures in the Bradbury Center. As you know, Phil, you've been there before and, and uh, worked with us and conducted research there. But th- those are some of the highlights for me. And you never know what you're going to find. You know, there are 150,000 pages. It's going to take us years to get through all of that fully understand and have the intellectual control that we need over yeah. the collection. But also, you know, one of my favorite stories uh, involves youth um, as far as scholar adventures and, and interesting finds. <laughs> What's this? Um, do you remember the last time you were there and you, you found a particular VHS? Oh, is this something wicked this way comes? Yes, yes, yes. You want to tell that story? <laughs> um, well, this for me, this is a something I'd I had assumed must exist somewhere, um, but I'd never seen any evidence that it existed, and that was the original cut of the film "Something Wicked This Way Comes." Famously, when the film was finished, it was shown to a preview audience, and they didn't really think much of it, and the Disney Studio went into a panic. Um, and decided they must remake this film. They've got to rework it. So they, they spent a year reshooting scenes from the film, bringing back some of the, some of the actors, um, the, the child actors who were, I guess, about 12 years old when the first shooting was done. They were now a year or a year and a half older. Um, didn't look the same at all, about two feet taller than they were before. Um, and you can see that in the final version of the film. The, the children suddenly age for some scenes and then go back to being normal again. But the original cut of that film has never been released. Um, there's no real evidence that it exists other than the stories people tell about it. And one day, when I was in the centre, I was just going through all the tapes because I was searching for um, television material primarily. Um, and I just wanted to know what was on all these tapes. And this one said something wicked. Um, I think it said first version or something like that. Handwritten. Um I think Bradbury's handwriting, but I can't quite remember. And I started playing the tape. Lo and behold, something wicked with a different title sequence, different opening, uh, different ending. Um, it was the first cut of the film, which I'd never seen before. Now, I'm sure Disney have a copy. Um, so this almost certainly isn't totally unique. But it's really fascinating to know that Ray had his own personal copy of this first version of the film. Um, and he personally was motivated to get the film changed. When they said, we're going to remake it, reshoot it, um, he saw that as an opportunity to get the film made the way he would have preferred it to be, rather than uh, the way it was being made, which was from a script that somebody else had tampered with. He was the... Just like going back to the Lee Brackett situation, where she would have been the credited writer even if she hadn't written the entire script. With Something Wicked, Bradbury was the credited writer, even though other writers had interfered with the script. So <laughs> Interesting, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I'm getting details from this that, that I didn't really know. But, it, yeah, I can imagine, uh, you yeah, know, Something Wicked is a pretty dark story. Um, you know, it's uh, it's one that, that Stephen King absolutely loves and credits as a major influence. And, yeah. 
if you uh, if you read something wicked and go on to read Stephen King's It, you will see Bradbury's influence, uh, something wicked's influence on Stephen King's uh, very love novel. Um, but I imagine with it being Disney, they weren't known for dark films, especially in the early eighties. And so I, I imagine the studio wanted a, a more toned down, family friendly version. And then the writer, I'm sure, had a vision of it. And Bradbury, no doubt, thought that his book was the perfect screenplay Absolutely. and didn't want anything changed. <laughs> you know, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, I t- I totally forgotten about that tape, but I remember when I was there, there was a guy doing little filmed um like documentary things in the center. Um he filmed John um talking about some Bradbury manuscripts and a book. Um and they said, "Would you talk about the tape?" So I I did one of these little 1-minute um Spiels oh, well, about the, about we've the got to track this down and get it out there. Oh, it's, it's out there. It's cool. out there somewhere. Oh, it, we, it? Yeah, it? we put it on okay. Facebook, but I've lost track of it. Well, we'll have to dig it out. Okay. Put it out again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. It's amazing. You know, you sleep a few times and, you know, three years pass and yeah. what leaves your memory? You know? Yes. <laughs> Well, thanks, thanks for the memory jog on that one. That's, that's brilliant. Um, I'll tell you an, another item that I find, um, quite fun is the jar. Um, oh, the jar. That's we, one of my favorites as well. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it is just a jar full of brown liquid, but you, you still think when you peer into it that you must be able to see something in there. I'm sure there's, there's, there's a living creature in there or a formerly living creature in there somewhere. Do you want to tell about the jar? Uh, just, just for the sake of, uh, our listeners. Uh, it, it's from the Alfred Hitchcock hour, uh, adaptation of Bradbury's story, the jar. Um, and the, the Bradbury story is about a man who goes to a carnival. And for some reason he buys this jar full of some strange object. He thinks he sees life in there. He thinks he sees eyes and flesh, but he can't quite make out what's in there. It's kind of a like one of those things you see in um, museums where um, where things are in formaldehyde. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like one of those. It's sort of a strange creature. And this guy brings it home from the carnival, and everybody is fascinated by it. And the TV version of it, which I love, has all of the people who are fascinated by it sitting around it, more or less in a circle, and staring at it pretty much in the same way that people sit around a TV screen and stare at it. So it's, it's almost a satire on television, yeah. <laughs> which I think is a nice, a nice twist to the original. But Ray somehow got to have the jar. I don't know how it came into his possession, but somehow it got into his hands and he kept it and it's made its way all, all the way to Indianapolis now. Yeah. Yeah. And it really, that, that, uh, is, uh, you know, it, it uh, our listeners believe in miracles. I think you could call it the survival of that jar of miracle because uh, Dr. Eller has told me where it was placed in Ray Bradbury's basement office and how many times he almost knocked it over and had it fall on the concrete floor of Bradbury's uh, basement office. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it really is miraculous that the thing has survived this long. And when we wanted to bring it out, the movers, uh, and I say we, I was not with the center at the time, but when John wanted to bring it out, the movers refused to touch it unless the lid was sealed. So mm-hmm. John very quickly had to do research and figure out how to get some sealant that would be clear. <laughs> it really makes you wonder what was in there, because it's only a film prop. So I know. Yeah. 
and yet we we think that it has some uh, some of these magical values that the fictional jar had, but it's probably just a piece of rag and a, 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 I don't know a boiled egg and some vinegar. <laughs> it's probably all yeah. the <laughs> maybe uh maybe a couple of plastic eyeballs or something yeah. you know yeah <laughs> i wonder what it's up to with the, with the lockdown has anyone been in there to check on the jar maybe it's maybe it comes to yes. life yes yes I, I was in there just last thursday oh. uh with our team members this was our first time back in the center actually doing physical work on site and of course we're all wearing masks and uh, trying to keep six feet away from each other but the the jar is is very good the collection has been safe and secure yeah. um during the lockdown it, perhaps maybe safer than it is when we are in there working because there's no risk of knocking something over accidentally yeah. i mean we're, we're all always very careful but to let things sit and be untouched is uh is a great way of preserving them i suppose and maybe that's a silver lining to our to our pandemic there's very few of those it seems like <laughs> um now of course 2020 is the bradbury centenary or centennial year um, and there were all sorts of events planned for this year most of which have now been cancelled or postponed or some of them have become online events were there any events that you particularly were going to be involved with either you personally or the bradbury center yeah absolutely um it was, you know, even starting back in uh, March, the Bradbury Center was going to have a uh, very prominent role at uh, Concoction, which is uh, Cleveland, Ohio's annual science fiction convention. So uh, I was going to go and be part of the opening and closing ceremonies, and they also had me slated to do four programs before they had to, they had to cancel that, unfortunately. Indiana Comic Con, which is not as large as the San Diego Comic Con International, but it's still quite a large regional event for us. Uh, we were going to have a virtual uh, VR display because we have done some 3D imaging of our artifacts. And so people can put on the goggles and, uh, you know, put on uh, the, the hand things and they can actually go in and pick up objects. They can pick up the Mars globe and the Nautilus and, and things like that. And we're also going to do a panel on um, Ray Bradbury's history of, of comic books, uh, uh, comic adaptations of his works. But fortunately, that was canceled. Worldcon uh, is taking place in New Zealand, and uh, they did not cancel that. They've moved that to a virtual format. So the Bradbury Center will be participating in the program. Oh, um, yeah, I'm an attending member. Uh, and so we will be doing a real-time virtual tour of the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies at some point during that weekend. There's been a couple of NEA Big Read events. Uh, I know that the American Writers Museum in Chicago still plans. I mean, at this point, I think they were hoping to have the Ray Bradbury exhibit live. They were going to borrow some of our artifacts uh, for a for an exhibit there to, to honor Ray Bradbury. That's been pushed back till either later in this year or early next year. Uh, but they've also got an NEA Big Read grant, and I believe that we're going to be uh, participating in, in that program in some form. And we're also going to be, uh, I believe, on October 7th in New Jersey. There's a affiliation of libraries that collaborated on another NEA Big Read grant, and we're going to be doing a real-time virtual tour for them. Their, their focus is Fahrenheit 451. So they're going to have a speaker come in and talk about Fahrenheit 451, and then they're going to have us doing real-time virtual tour of the Center for Bradbury Studies and talk 
as much as we can about uh, some of Bradbury's personal history, you know, some biographical information. Those are just a few of the events. We had a very, very full schedule. Uh, and because of COVID and because of uh, this very strange time that we're all living in, uh, Bradbury's centennial is going to be extended into 2021. And uh, events that we couldn't get to this year, we're going to try to uh, take what we had prepared for those events and, and, and do those in other contexts next year. Um, I, I do remember a couple of years ago when I was talking to John about um, 2020, um, he was even then talking about finding ways of sort of stretching that centennial year and, and saying, well, you know, Bradbury would have been 100 for a whole year. So, you know, it's not just it's not just the one day. You, you're, you're entitled to carry it on till the following year because he, he still would have been 100. Yeah. So, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, if you had to choose just one piece of Bradbury, um, short story, novel, anything you like, what would you choose? Let's say you're on a desert island and you, you're only allowed to take one thing with you. Which Bradbury would oh. you take? Well, if I'm only allowed to take one collection, it would be the October Country, because that has my favorite Bradbury story in the, uh, the lake. Okay. And I, you know, I, I appreciate the spookier side of Bradbury. Anyway, yeah. uh, of course, that has the jar. I mean, in the site, and then so many uh, wonderful and really, really uh, unique uh, stories. You know, he, he doesn't follow the typical tropes of the horror genre. Um, you know, he's, he goes for the weird and the eerie and the haunting. But, um, if I was to pick a collection, uh, it would be October Country because of the lake and because of how important that has been to me in my entire teaching career. But I think the Illustrated Man may be my favorite overall collection as far as just yeah. fantastic stories. Yeah. Um, uh, but man, that's, uh, Phil, that's tough. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I love the illustrated man. I love, I love the, the framework, the way that he wove those stories together with the illustrated man whose tattoos move, you know, who's tattooed by a witch from the future. And, uh, and so you've got these disparate science fiction stories. How do you bring them all together under a common theme? And to, to kind of tell these individual short stories within a broader narrative of a man encountering another man who has tattoos from head to toe is, I just, I, I just think it's brilliant. <laughs> Do you not think it's crazy? Oh, well, yeah, but um, I mean, the craziness is what makes it brilliant. And, and, okay. and I take it you've got a different opinion of the collection than I. Oh, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I, um, oh, gotcha. I, it, the illustrated man has got some of his best stories, undoubtedly. I just think the linking device. It's coming from a, a, a totally different angle. To the, the most of the stories are sort of cautionary science fiction tales, and then the framing narrative is this total fantasy about tattoos. <laughs> doesn't seem yeah. doesn't seem to connect for me. I mean, it, it's oh. it's very well done, but it, it they're like at ninety degrees to each other. Right. Yeah. He's setting a uh, a fantasy armature and then infusing science fiction into it. I love it. I, I just I thought it was such a cool concept. But what about you? I mean, what's what what is uh, Bradbury's best collection? If you're going to take one book, um, I think I always go to the Golden Apples of the Sun. Um, yeah, and it's possibly because that was the first Bradbury that I was introduced to. Possibly also because it's got 
well, at least two stories that um, really grabbed me on first reading. Now, I think I would have been about 12 when I read that book, and it was it was a book that uh, my English class was given. So, you know, all these school kids were just given this book to read, and we read the short stories, and we were looking at the uh, the composition more than anything, I suppose, the, you know, the use of language, not so much the story structure, but, you know, the use of descriptive language and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that was the first piece of literature that I'd been given that I actually enjoyed. In, in British schools, you, you tended to be given things like, oh, Jane Austen, Dickens, Shakespeare. Um, and there are some nice things in those, but they, they're not the kind of thing that you would read when you're off duty. But with the Bradbury stuff, I found myself reading ahead because the stories were so fascinating. Um, and, and the two stories for me, which absolutely blew my mind when I was 12 years old, uh, are The Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl, which is about this guy who becomes obs- well, he, he, he kills somebody and then becomes obsessed with cleaning up the fingerprints that would um, link him with the killing. Um, and he begins to see fingerprints everywhere. He realises he touched the table, he touched the glass, he touched the shelf, he touched the doorknob. He, Oh, did he touch the chandelier up there? Oh, may, maybe he touched the chandelier. So he starts polishing every part of the chandelier, even though he couldn't possibly have touched it. So it's this total obsession. Um, and I just think that's a fabulous story. And the other one is um, A Sound of Thunder, which is the classic time travel, go back and hunt dinosaurs story, um, time paradox, all of that. Um, so those those stories absolutely blew my mind when I first read them because they were just so incredibly creative and beautifully written as well. There's there's not a word wrong in either of those stories as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, I, I yeah, I always go back to Golden Apples of the Sun. There's some stories in there that when I, when I leaf through it, I think, well, actually, I don't really remember that story or that story doesn't engage me very much. But there are enough really great stories in that book that it's it's my favorite well i i agree with you I, I, those stories resonated with me and you know for a while there you know i was trying to to bring my children i've got two two daughters that are middle school age now but they were in grade school when i started reading bradbury to them and for for a very long time fruit at the bottom of the bowl they both loved that story. Now, Dr. Eller said, you're going to make the kids really weird reading them, those kind of <laughs> stories at, at such a young age. Uh, but they, they got such, they, they were so tickled by uh, you know, this guy basically causing his own demise by trying to cover up his crime. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Very good collection. Some wonderful stories in there. I remember the first time I read that was the summer, just a few weeks before I started officially working in the Bradbury Center, I had attended the first advisory board meeting for the Bradbury Center because at that point I'd been accepted into the PhD program and I was officially about to start and was invited to the first advisory board meeting and several members pointed to that as their first encounter with Ray Bradbury. And mm-hmm. What stood out to me in that story was the big black and white game. Yeah. And the, 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 the way that he was writing about race and uh, looking at when the story was written, he was really very much ahead of his time. If not, uh, you know, he may, we may not be able to consider Bradbury ahead of, you know, our 21st century ideals and understanding of, of those sorts of things, but he really was 
trying to use his platform as a writer to get white people to think about the injustices that were going on at the time. And not just in terms of laws, but in the way that people interacted with each other. And, and you see that in a number of other stories as well, don't you? In, uh, Way in the Middle of the Air. Do you know that one from the Martian Chronicles? Yes. From Martian um, Chronicles, absolutely. Where basically all the black people in, in America just decide they've had enough and they're going to go off to another planet. The interesting thing about that for me is that Bradbury later on came to realize that the world had, the real world had changed so much that that story didn't really work for him anymore in the context of the Martian Chronicles. So in later editions, he took it out, not because of censorship or anything like that. It's just that he felt that the world had moved on and the book didn't really need that story anymore. Obviously, the story still exists and can be found in other collections. But I, I think that's that shows a, a kind of wisdom. And there's a sequel to that, which I think is called The Other Foot... Yeah, in Illustrated, Illustrated Man. Illustrated Man, yeah, yeah. Which, where we, I, I can't remember that one terribly well, but I, I seem to recall that all the black people who've gone to Mars are sort of now happily, um, set up on that planet. Um, and they're, they're sort of refle- right, right. reflecting on their position, their new position, um, in that new world. So, it, yeah, it's, and, and they see, uh, they see a rocket coming from Earth to Mars and they know that there are white people. Oh, yes. And, Yes. What, what are we going to do? How are we going to treat them? And w- one man becomes a leader and says, we're going to do to them exactly what they did to us. They're going to sit at the back of the bus. Yeah. They're going to sit in the nosebleed seats at the theater. Yeah. They're not going to be allowed to use this water phone. Uh, and so they begin to kind of organize their towns in preparation for, for white people to be second class citizens. And, uh, it, I, I think it was a, it was a powerful device. You couldn't get it published in. Mm. Uh, he had to wait until the Illustrated Man came out to get that published in his in his collection because nobody would touch it. It was, uh, you know, a very different time in America and a very uh, uh, unfortunate uh, time. And Bradbury was doing everything he could from his, you know, place to to be an advocate for for change. Mm. That's that's really good to hear you say that actually. Um, just occasionally we hear criticisms of Fahrenheit 451 um, because there are some some sections in there which are not actually Bradbury the author talking. They are one of Bradbury's characters talking. So I'm, I'm thinking in particular of Beattie giving his explanation of how the world came to be the way it is with all the censorship um, and burning of books and all of that. And Beattie blames it on... Um, minorities now he doesn't yeah, the tyranny of the minority the tyranny of the minority that's right um but and, and i think people looking at that today who who aren't familiar with the sort of the context in which it was written tend to look at it and see the word minorities and immediately think ethnic minorities that this is a criticism of ethnic minorities which to me is firstly a misreading of the, the word minorities in that context but it's also missing the fact that these words are coming out of the villain of the novel. They're not coming out of the narrator or the hero. This is the the evil guy, if you like, justifying his own existence. Um, so so I, I think sometimes Bradbury is misunderstood. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I agree. And uh, you know, there there's a there's a section in Fahrenheit that I love, and I believe it's when Montag. 
uh, encounters this sort of mentor figure who helps, you know, um, if uh, Clarice is his herald, uh, who, who wakes him up and alerts him that he needs to uh, go on his, his, his adventure and start exploring uh, literacy and the benefits of it. Um, the, the name of his mentor figure is escaping me. Can you help me out? Do you uh, Faber? Yes, Faber. Faber. Uh, never hide your ignorance. Because <laughs> if you hide it, nobody will hit you and you will never learn. And uh, I, I absolutely, absolutely love that. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's some wisdom in that. Well, uh, yeah, and, you know, I, in 2015, I was finishing up my, my second master's degree, which was a master's in English. And I was sitting in Dr. John Eller's class. You know, of course, he was the director of the Bradbury Center at the time and chancellor's professor of English. And he brought in some photocopies of the original draft of Fahrenheit 451 that had Bradbury's uh, personal edits. You know, he had it typed up and then he wrote in, in marker, you know, his uh, you know, changes that he wanted to make. But it, it really was, was fascinating because it hadn't been, you know, in maybe five or six years since I first encountered Fahrenheit 451 for the first time to see that famous opening line, it was a pleasure to burn, was there from the very beginning. It was just... Uh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I love um, in looking at Bradbury's scripts, which is obviously my my fascination. But looking at different drafts of Bradbury's script, and particularly when you come across a page where he has hand corrected or hand annotated something, and you do see he, through successive drafts, he will tweak and he will change but eventually he will come to the kind of perfect form of words and it will stay there for the next, I don't know, 15, 20 drafts. But there's, there's clearly something in his approach to writing which is about seeking perfection. Um, but he doesn't necessarily know which direction perfection is in. He just knows that I've got to change it. So he'll make a change and then the next time round he might change that to something else again. Uh, but eventually every, every sentence will find its own um, perfection, its kind of plateau uh, that it will settle to. And I find that fascinating. Yeah. It's also infuriating because you think <laughs> this must be the, the definitive version of this text. And then you find there's another draft. And it's, ah, I've got to compare these two now. Um, where I, I really don't envy John because the, the <laughs> collected stories was all about um, comparing all of these different drafts and collating them. And that's... That, uh, that drives you mad, I think, to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Phil, how did you get into to Bradbury? I know that you encountered him uh, when you were twelve, but what made you decide to, you know, kind of make this your your academic area of of very high expertise? <laughs> um, I like that phrase. Um, there were really two things that came together there. One was that I was fascinated by script writing. Um, and I knew fairly on, fairly early on that Bradbury had been a script writer. Um, this was when I was in my teens, really. So I'd, I'd read his books and I knew that he was a script writer because it said so on the, the back cover of the, some of the books. But none of those films seemed to exist, um, with the exception of Moby Dick. Um, the, the back cover copy of his books mostly referred to films that just didn't exist. There was one called The Dreamers, um, which was never made. Um, and there was another one 
um, trying to think what it was. Might have been And the Rock Cried Out, which is a, a well-known Bradbury story, but there is no such film. Um, mm-hmm. And this fascinated me. Where were these films? Why were people saying that he wrote these films when they clearly don't exist? And of course, over time, I came to realise that lots of scripts get written, very few get turned into actual films. And that, that was what was happening to Bradbury. So I became quite fascinated by that. And I just started keeping notes and records and lists. Like, you know, some people keep um, records of football scores or baseball scores, scores, that sort of thing. I would keep notes on everything that I found where Bradbury had mentioned a script um, or been involved with a film. So this was just like a, a weird hobby uh, of mine. So that's that's one interest, if you like, one hobby interest. But then the academic side of it was there came a point where um, I was thinking of doing a PhD and I thought, well, what on earth could I do a PhD about? And I was being, in a way, I was being lazy. I was thinking, I want to do something that won't involve too much work. And I thought, I already know this, lots of stuff about this, this Bradbury script writing. So perhaps I should use that as my focus. Boy, was that a big can of worms that I'd opened. <laughs> <laughs> you really went down the rabbit hole, didn't you? Absolutely. Well, the, the, the thing that happened, um, ironically, is it, uh, it was when Ray died and his papers became available through the Bradbury Centre. Um, that completely changed really what my PhD would have been. If Ray hadn't died or if his papers hadn't ended up in a research centre, I would have been restricted pretty much to looking at stuff that had been published. Um, I could still have done the PhD and I'd done quite a lot of the work at that point, but mostly I would have been looking at published books, published scripts, published radio plays, TV dramas and films. And it would have all been about that aspect of Bradbury's work, which would have, would have been okay, but it would have been a misleading impression of what Bradbury's screenwriting was really about. But because the papers became available through the Bradbury Centre, um, that opened up this whole new area for me to look at. So most of what went into my PhD is stuff that came after Bradbury's death. And in a way, it's fortunate that I took so long to do my PhD. I took eight years to do it, uh, which is ridiculous. I should have done it in three, but uh, it took me eight years. But that meant that I had access to all this material that was gifted. Well, yeah. It felt like it, you shouldn't beat yourself up on that too much. I... I'm working on my dissertation right now, and I can totally see how a dissertation can take eight years. I'm, I'm conscious of the, the time running away with us um, now, so I, I think I'll draw this to a close. Um, just, just to finish, is, is there anything that you, you would like to mention that we, we haven't talked about? Anything, um, anything up, upcoming for you or for the Bradbury Centre? Yeah, I can't think of anything. Probably as soon as we wrap this up, I will uh, <laughs> say, oh, I should have said this. You know, that's, uh, what do the French call it? The spirit of the staircase. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but no, right now, um, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to participate in the podcast. And uh, I think you're doing some wonderful things, Phil, but always got uh, immense respect and appreciation for what you do for uh, the, the world of Ray Bradbury, and so glad to have you as a senior advisor to the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies. My thanks once again to Jason Orkerman for joining me today. I'll put links to the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies on my own website, 
bradburymedia.co.uk. And join me, please, next week for another episode of Bradbury 100. Bye now. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury's Studies. Additional technical production is by Zachary Sokol. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies.